So, Paul, let's begin this week's show this way. I want you to, um, I want you to explain to me everything you had to go through in order to see the movie Independence Day. I had to get something to eat. I had to get not only a Coke, but also uh, a juice from, from somewhere outside of the movie theater and not open it up. I didn't want to have it open. I wanted to have it sealed and, and have a straw with a paper straw cover around it. Had to sit on the aisle. Had to leave the theater during the previews and then come back in just as the movie was about to start. Had to wash my hands a couple of times, of course, just so, you know, in case I had to operate or anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> Happens a lot in your modern theaters. <laughs> who's, who's already scrubbed? <laughs> I'd sort of known that there were, you know, that I had certain little quirks sometimes when I was watching a movie or, you know, really doing doing anything. Um, but for some reason, I just realized that it was going a little too far, that, that these rituals that I developed were just a little bit out of control. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, we choose a topic bring you a variety of different kinds of stories, documentaries, radio monologues, short stories, found tape, anything we can think of. Today's program, what happens when a little idea becomes a compulsion? What happens when it starts to control you? Our program today in four acts, four different stories, and joining me for this hour is Paul Tuff, who actually holds a job, doesn't just, <laughs> doesn't just go to theaters freaking out his fellow patrons. <laughs> Paul Tuff, an editor at Harper's Magazine in New York and a contributing editor to our show as well. Paul has been thinking and talking to a lot of people about uh, this subject uh, of small obsessions and compulsions. And uh, can I just say that, that your story in the movie theater, I mean, do, I mean, those are pretty small things. I mean, that is, those, all those things seem pretty innocent. They are. They are. I, I mean, none of them are, are, are really out of control. I guess... I guess one of the reasons they sort of they sort of hit me is just because I'd been thinking about this uh, a lot, and and what struck me about it was that feeling where suddenly you think you know this this could become a lot worse. I mean, there are people you know okay, I was washing my hands a couple times before a movie. Movie theaters are kind of dirty places, but you know there are people out there who wash their hands hundreds of times a day, and what separates me from that person? You know? A couple hundred times. <laughs> exactly. A, num a numeric, there's a numeric number we can assign to that difference. But I had this feeling there in the movie theater that, you know, it could happen at any point. So, Paul, among the cavalcade of stories that you've brought into play for us over the course of the hour about obsession, I know some of them are serious and some of them are lighter. What do you want to start with? Um, one of the first people that I talked to is actually someone that I know really well, uh, uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine named Jillian. Um, and what I wanted to talk to her about was her obsession with the number two. Um, when she was a kid, just like any kid, she had, you know, a favorite number, a favorite color, and her favorite number was two. But it became a, a lot bigger than that. So I started being very preoccupied with doing things twice. If I, for example, dropped um, keys 
I would, I would then lean down and pick them up, but before I actually picked them up, I would probably drop them again, like really close to the floor, so no one would quite know what I was doing. Um, but I'd be very aware that I was, you know, fulfilling some sort of two obligation. Her obligations weren't all-consuming, but they were somewhat laborious. At the dinner table or in class, she'd say something and then she'd have to repeat it under her breath to make a two. If she made a phone call and the person that she was calling wasn't there, she'd have to let the phone ring an even number of times. She started to see the whole world as being divided into things that were even, things that were on the side of two, and things that were odd. You know, I had a favorite, my favorite color was blue, and I also had this fantasy that blue was basically an even color. So it all seemed to fit in, right? But yellow seemed much more odd to me, and red seemed odd to me, and brown seemed even. Black seemed odd. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't resonate at all with you. Well, uh, I'm, no, I, I, I can see blue being even. Tell me a little bit more about the other associations with two. Like you talked about, um, I think you've told me once that days of the week were as well. Yeah, days. Uh, both Sunday and Monday seem even to me. But, you know, I don't like them as days at all. I much prefer Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, which seem odd. I mean, days are weird. Monday, Wednesday seems pretty even to me. Tuesday, Thursday, Friday all seem odd. I gotta say, I see it totally differently. You do? Yeah, I see Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays as even and all the others as odd. I mean, Tuesday, first of all. That <laughs> <laughs> goes without saying. <laughs> about an obsession like Jillian's is that it, it can it can grow to the point where it's not just this game in your head it can start to really control your behavior and that's a problem because that's when people start to notice Jillian for instance she she not only had a thing with the number two she also had a, a deal with symmetry where things had to be really symmetrical in terms of her body if she would touch her left ear then she'd have to touch her right ear things would things would have to be very even the big symmetry thing that I can remember um, is going to a Broadway show with my family. And I had this sense that um, that I, I, it didn't feel quite right to just clap with my hands. And so I developed this thing about clapping with my elbows with this idea that um, somehow like that would that would produce a more symmetrical experience. And so I would clap with my hands and then clap with my elbows and then maybe even clap with like the entire hand and elbow. And like I can remember sort of sitting there and like someone turning to me and saying, What are you doing? What are you doing with your elbows? And thinking like, you know, this is not normal. you about is the relationship between the two thing and, and other people in your life and um, and I just sort of remember that there were times when when you and I were going out where I would get really mad about the two thing I mean do you remember do you remember those times when I would when I would get mad about twos 
Yeah, but I always felt like your irritation about it was just irrational. I mean, for example, like, it used to come up a lot with the, the alarm clock, right? Uh-huh. Like, I set my alarm clock usually for um, 8.02. If I need a little more sleep, then it's 8.12 or 8.22. I don't really like 8.32, but I'll, I'll do that. Um, but so when I used to want to set the alarm clock for 8.02 and you would object and want to set it, I mean, first of all, sometimes you would object, you would just want to set it for 8.03, which was just pure malice on your part. Like, obviously, I'm not going to be happy if the alarm clock is set for 8.03. I mean, what would you really care if I set the alarm clock for 8.02? Well, I'm, I actually remember that now that we've started talking about it. <laughs> I, I actually remember what makes me mad about not being able to set the clock for 8.01. <laughs> <laughs> because it is. It's about, like, it's about, like, unnecessarily cluttering your life with things, you know? Spending extra time piling stuff on to your good mood or bad mood just seems totally unnecessary, you know? But, but, but it's only, you only think about it as piling stuff if it's something that, you, that really feels like an obligation, which the two things is in a certain way, but it, it's, also, it's also just something that you like or that I like. Yeah, no, but that's not, what, that's, not, that's not what would bother me about it. It wasn't just that you would say, oh, you know, oh, 802. Oh, you said for 802. That's great. <laughs> that's that's going to be fun. It was like if it was 801, you'd go nuts. You get, well, that's you, just you know, because I realized that you, it, was, the, it was coming no, out of, no. like, a sadistic impulse in you. No, that's not. If I just, you know, if I just happened to, like, be fast-forwarding through the oh, whole 24 hours, never just and then happen. I drop it around. No, no, you would never just happen to set it for 801. You would set it, and there would be, like, you know, something very sinister about your setting the alarm clock. It only became sinister after I'd already, you know, felt like you were overdoing it. Uh, you think this is really the place to rehearse <laughs> I'm addicted to the two thing, and um, in a way that's kind of almost as powerful as any other physical addiction. And that doesn't bother you? No. I think that I actually kind of, um, I like it. I mean, I think I like having that kind of order in my life and having um, routine. drop the keys and pick them up again. Yeah. You'd do that sort of quietly, right? So that other people wouldn't think yeah. you were doing that. Well, I mean, you know, I was clued in enough to know that people would think it would be kind of weird. You know, your average Joe is not going to be that sympathetic to someone with a obsession with a number two. Although I do think, you know, the more I, I talk to people, I do think people have variations of these things. You know, you talked about it about being a continuum, you know, and on the one side of the continuum would be the people who you might just label as quirky and the other side of the continuum would be the people who might have to start taking Prozac, right? Um, And I think, yeah, I think most people are on the continuum. Paul? I mean, sure sure, most people are on the continuum, but but that doesn't explain why one particular person, you know, why Jillian, would end up with such an extreme set of beliefs and practices and someone else would end up with fewer. I mean, why, why do you think that she ended up at the point where she is in the continuum? Well, we talked about it a lot, and I don't think either one of us really came up with a, with a definite answer. 
The one thing I kept thinking about, though, is that, to me, obsessions can sometimes take the place of religion in people's lives. An organized religion gives you certain rules, certain rituals by which to live your life. Things will be orderly if you if you follow those rules, and if you grow up in a in a non-religious environment, maybe you start creating those rules for yourself. You grew up in a pretty atheist household, right? Yes. Um, so, do you think that maybe people who grew up in that sort of household, where there weren't a lot of sets of rituals, and and where it was sort of a hyper-rational household, right? You know? I mean, it, it, there's no religion. There's two psychologists as parents who both basically who believe that everything can be figured out, you know. But like both you and, and I think your siblings, too, have kind of this tendency towards, you know, magical thinking. Um, but, you know, I don't, uh, my siblings and stuff didn't really, I don't think they really experienced, I mean, I, you know, I, I could imagine that it is a kind of substitute, but um, if it is, then it was pretty specific to me. What about Elena and the rubber bands? <laughs> what do you know about Elena and the rubber bands? I know that she wore rubber bands around her her arm every day for like a couple of years or something. And do you know why she wore them? No. I don't know either. I think she wore them. I mean, she wore <laughs> she wore a lot of rubber bands. She didn't just wear them around her arm. She wore she wore big rubber bands around <laughs> her neck too. <laughs> <laughs> she had lots of rubber bands all the time, and I think she also like carried um, paper clips in her pockets. And that's 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 the hyper rational side of your family you're talking. About. <laughs> I mean, you know. I really, I, I don't actually think, I think if you go into any house, though, you'll find these kind of things. You know, like my mother used to say that um, that having four kids um, expanded her ideas of the normal, like what the normal could entail. So, Paul, so what else do we have coming up? Well, I've gathered another few stories about obsession. Um, the next one is a little bit further down that continuum. This is one with somewhat more serious consequences. Won't you be my number two? Me and number one are through. There won't be too much to do. Just smile when I feel blue. And there's not much left of me What you get is what you see Is it worth the energy? I leave it up to you Act two, further out. You know, Ira, the thing that, that's, I think, a little scary about these compulsions, even even the ones that are pretty innocent, like Jillian's, is that you feel when you've got them that something else is controlling you. And so that makes you think that you could just suddenly go over the edge just because you're out of control, you know? There's a sense that something else is writing the rules. So explain what you've got first next. Well, this is a story of someone who did go over the edge, for a while anyway. It's by a woman named Lauren Slater, who is a psychologist in Boston. And this is an excerpt from uh, a book that's going to be published soon, which is tentatively titled Black Swans. 
One thing that's really interesting to me about Lauren, um, especially after having talked to Jillian, is that they sort of started in the same place. As a child, Lauren did a lot of the same compulsive things that Jillian did and had, had a lot of the same superstitious beliefs and fears. Uh, when she walked through a door, she had to tap the frame three times. When she said her prayers at night, between each prayer, she felt she had to close her eyes and then count to ten and a half. But uh, at some point, it went further than that. There is something satisfying and scary about making an angel, lowering your bulky body into the drowning fluff, stray flakes landing on your face. I am seven or eight, and the sky looms above me, gray and dead. I move my arms and legs, expanding, contracting, sculpting snow before it can swallow me up. I register a mistake on my angel, what looks like a thumbprint on its left wing. I reach down to erase it, but am unable to smooth the snow perfectly, so I start again on another angel, lowering myself, swishing and sweeping, rolling over. No. Yet another mistake. This time the symmetry in the wingspan is wrong. A compulsion comes over me. I do it again and again. In my memory, hours go by. My fingers inside my mittens get wrinkled and raw. My breath comes heavily and the snow begins to blue. A moon rises, a perfect crescent pearl whose precise shape I will never be able to recreate. I ache for something I cannot name. Someone calls me. Come in now. Come in now. Very early the next morning I awaken, look out my bedroom window, and see the yard covered with my frantic forms. Hundreds of angels, none of them quite right. The forms twist and strain, the wings seeming to struggle up in the winter sun, as if each angel were longing for escape for a free flight that might crack the crystal and ice of her still, stiff world. Looking back on it now, I think maybe those moments in the snow were when my OCD began, although it didn't come to me full-fledged until my mid-twenties. OCD stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, and some studies say over three million Americans suffer from it. Some mental health professionals claim that the onset of obsession is a response to an underlying fear, a recent trauma, say, or a loss. I don't believe that that is always true, because no matter how hard I think about it, I remember nothing unusual or disorienting before my first attack. I don't know exactly why, at two o'clock one Saturday afternoon, what felt like a seizure shook me. I recall lying on the floor in my apartment in Cambridge. I was immersed in a book, The Seven-Story Mountain, walking my way through the Tales Church. A monk moaned, and suddenly this, a thought careening across my cortex, I can't concentrate. Of course the thought disturbed my concentration, and the monk's moan turned into a whisper, disappeared. I blinked, looked up from the book. The floor suddenly frightened me. Between the planks I could see lines of dark dirt and the sway of a spider crawling. Let me get back, I thought, into the world of the book. I lowered my eyes to the page, but instead of being able to see the print, there was the thought blocking out all else. I can't concentrate. Now I started to panic. 
Each time I tried to get back to the book, the words crumbled, lost their shapes. I said to myself, I must not allow that thought about concentration to come into my mind anymore. But of course, the more I tried to suppress it, the louder it jangled. I looked at my hand. I ached for its familiar skin, but as I held it out, the sentence, I can't concentrate on my hand, blocked out my hand, so all I saw was a blur of flesh. I tried to force my brain onto other topics, but with each mental dodge, I became aware that I was dodging, and each time I itched, I became aware that I was itching, and with each inhalation, I became aware that I was inhaling, and I thought, if I think too much about breathing, will I forget how to breathe? Say God I'm sorry 14 times I ordered myself. This is crazy, I said to myself. 15 times, a voice from somewhere else commanded. In the days after my attack, obsessive thoughts returned. What before had been inconsequential behaviors, like counting to three before I went through a doorway or checking the stove several times before bed, now became imperatives. There were a thousand and one of them to follow. Rules about how to step, what it meant to touch my mouth, a hot consuming urge to fix the crooked angles of the universe. It was constant, a cruel nattering. There, that tilted picture on the wall. Scratch your head with your left hand only. It was noise, the beak of a woodpecker and the soft bark of my brain. I did very little for the next year. I didn't want to go out because any movement might set off a cycle of obsessions. I sat hunched and lost weight. Fear and grief prevented me from eating much. When I was too terrified to get out of bed, I checked into the local hospital, where I lay amidst IV drips, bags of blood murmuring heart machines that let me know someone somewhere near was still alive. Then one day my doctor said to me, there's a new medication called Prozac, still in its trial period, but it's 70% effective with OCD. I want to send you to a Dr. Vukovic. He's one of the physicians doing trial runs. I shrugged, willing to try. I'd tried so much, surely this couldn't hurt. I didn't expect much, though. I certainly didn't expect what I finally got. The pads of paper on Vukovic's desk are all edged in green and white, with the word Prozac scripted across the bottom. The pen has Prozac embossed in tiny letters. He asks me about my symptoms for a few minutes, and then uses the Prozac pen to write out a prescription. After a couple of days of nausea and headaches, the Prozac began to work its magic. One morning I woke up and waited for a command. Touch your nose, blink twelve times, try not to think about concentrating. The imperatives came, I could hear them, but from far away, like birds beyond a mountain, a sound nearly silent and easy to ignore. By the fourth day I felt so shockingly fine that I called Dr. Rukovic. I believed he had saved me. I'm well, I told him. Not yet. It takes at least a month to build up a therapeutic blood level. No, I said, it doesn't. I felt a rushing joy. The medicine you gave me has made me well. I've actually never felt better. A pause on the line. I suppose it could be possible. Yes, I said, it's happened.
summing up the chemistry of obsession, Prozac stops working for Lauren Slater, a beaded kitchen, and more when our program continues. American Life, I'm Ira Glass, and co-hosting with me for this hour is Paul Tuff, one of our contributing editors, and he has uh, he's assembled a number of stories about obsession. And right now we're in the middle of a story by Lauren Slater, um, and she found herself seized by obsessions, hearing voices that paralyzed her. And then nearly overnight she found herself cured by Prozac. How could a drug change my mind so abruptly? My brain wasn't wet clay and paste as all good brains should be, but a glinting thing crossed with wires. I wasn't human, but machine. No, I wasn't machine, but animal, linked to my electrified biology more completely than I could have imagined. We have come to think lately of machines and animals, of machines and nature as occupying opposite sides of the spectrum. There is IBM and then there's the lake, but really they are so similar. A computer goes on when you push its button, a gazelle goes on when it sees a lynx. Only humans are supposedly different, above the pure cause and effect of the hardwired primitive world. Free will and all. But no, maybe not, for I had swallowed a pill designed through technology, and in doing so, I was discovering myself embedded in an animal world. I was a purely chemical being, mood and personality seeping through serotonin. We are all taught to believe it's true, but how strange to feel that supposed truth bubbling right in your own tweaked brain pan. Mornings now, I got up early to jog, showered efficiently, then strode off to the library. I was able to go back to work, cutting deli part-time at Formaggio's while I prepared myself for divinity school the next year by reading. I read with an appetite, hungry from all the time I'd lost to illness. The pages of the book seemed very white. The words were easy, black beads shining, ebony in my quieted mind. Then one day, as though I'd never swallowed a Prozac pill, my mind seized and clamped and the obsessions were back. I was staying with a family in Appalachian, Kentucky, on an oral history project. During my interview with Kat, the mother, I decided to take a break in the sandy yard. It was almost 100 degrees. Chickens screamed and pecked. In one swift and seamless move, Kat's husband Lonnie reached down to grab a bird. He laid it down on a stump, raised an axe, and cut. The body did its dance. Blood spilled. I ran inside. I took a step forward and then said to myself, 
Don't take another step until you count to twenty-five. After I'd satisfied that imperative, I had to count to twenty-five again, and then have twenty-five, and then quarter it, before I felt safe enough to walk out the door. By the end of the day, each step took over ten minutes to complete. I stopped taking steps. I sat on my bed. What's wrong with you? Cat said. Come out here and talk with us. I tried, but I got stuck in the doorway. There was a point above the doorway I just had to see, and then see again. And inside of me, something screamed, "Back again, back again." The next morning, a Sunday, Cat told me, "You'll feel better if you come to church with us." She peered into my face, which must have been white and drawn. Are you suffering from some city sickness? Come to church, Cat said. We can ask the preacher to pray for you. But I didn't believe in prayers where my illness was concerned. I had come to think that whatever was wrong with me had a simplistic chemical cause. I woke late one night, fists clenched. It took me an hour to get out of bed. So many numbers I had to do, but I was determined. And then I was walking outside, pushing past the need to count before every step. I passed midnight fields, a single shack with lighted windows. Cows slept in a pasture. I rounded the pasture, walked up a hill, and then before me, spreading out in moonlight, a lake. I stood by its lip. My mind was buzzing and jerking. I don't know at what point the swans appeared. White swans, they must have been, but in silhouette they looked black, and they seemed to materialize straight out of the water. They rose to the surface as memories rise to the surface of consciousness. Hundreds of black swans suddenly floating, absolutely silent. And as I stood there, the counting ceased. My mind became silent, and I watched. The swans drifted until it seemed, for a few moments, that they were inside of me. Seven dark, silent birds, fourteen princesses, a single self swimming in a tepid sea. I don't know how long I stood there, or when exactly I left. The swans disappeared eventually. The counting, ticking, talking of my mind resumed. Still, even in chattering illness, I had been quieted for a bit. Doors in me had opened. Elegance had entered. This thought calmed me. I was not completely claimed by illness, nor was I a prisoner of Prozac, entirely dependent on the medication to function. Part of me was still free. A private space, not absolutely permeated by pain, a space I could learn to cultivate. It is a smaller space than I would have wished for myself. Even after I raised my dose, the Prozac never worked as well as it once had. And years later, I am sometimes sad about that, other times strangely relieved, even though my brain is hounded. I still must check my keys, the stove. I must pause many times while I write this and do a ritual count to thirty. It's distracting to say the least, but still I write this. I can walk and talk and play, 
I've come to live my life in those brief stretches of silence that arrive throughout the day. I am learning something about the single moment, how rife with potential it is, how truly loud its tick. Lauren Slater is a psychologist and writer in Boston. This story is excerpted from her upcoming book, Black Swans. Uh, and also, Paul, you guys are going to publish this in Harper's in September, right? That's right. Okay. Warren uh, Slater is also the author of Welcome to My Country, which was published this year by Random House. Sacred versus profane. I'm Ira Glass here with Paul Tuff. Paul, welcome back. Thank you, Ira. And Paul is one of the contributing editors to our program, also a writer and a senior editor at Harper's Magazine. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme and do a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. And Paul, you have been gathering the stories for this week's show. And the theme is, for those who just are tuning in... Uh, we're talking about obsession and, and the compulsions and rituals that go along with it. So you have kind of a meta-obsession going, sort of an obsession with obsessions. Uh, exactly. I'm obsessed with, with the obsessed of all sorts. At least for the purposes of this hour. And um, as we've been putting this show together over the last few weeks, you've been saying that um, these kinds of compulsions that we're hearing about share a lot with religion. Yeah, I think I think there are certain similarities. I mean, I think that, that um, just as religions um, can help people sort of find order in a, in a chaotic world, um, some of these rituals that, that people create for themselves do the same thing. This reminded me, when we've talked about this, this reminded me of something that I learned in Hebrew school as a kid. I don't know, let me get some music going here. There we go. This music was always playing when I was a child, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the shtetl in Baltimore. This is the glass household, <laughs> pretty much. Anyway, what it, what it reminded me of is this thing that I learned that in traditional Judaism, and, and you'll still see very religious Jews do this, that in that kind of Judaism, nearly every act of human life is accompanied by some kind of ritual or a thanks to God or a prayer, including putting on clothes, washing your hands, using the bathroom, strict rules about what you can eat and how you eat it. The, you know, the kosher laws. 
um, rules on covering the head. Uh, a religious Jew kisses the mezuzah and the door frames in his own home when he enters and leaves a room. Plus all sorts of prayers and blessings. If we hear lightning, there's a blessing for that. If we see thunder, there's a blessing for that. If we see, if we hear bad news during the day, there's a blessing to bless the true judge. Uh, if we hear good news, uh, depending on what type of good news, we might say a shehechianu. This is Meyer Silber, 35 years old, father of three, a member of the Chabad Hasidic community here in Chicago. He's a litigator for the local district council of the IRS and was gracious enough to come in and talk to me about the similarities and differences between the hundred rituals that he does as a religious Jew every day and the more secular rituals that, um, that you've been talking about, the people you've interviewed, Paul, have been talking about all over the course of the hour so far. And when he came in, I described a, a bunch of these kind of daily compulsive rituals to him. Jillian's having to do things in twos, you know, dropping her car keys and then having to drop them a second time. Or Lauren Slater's having to count to 30 every now and then before she can allow herself to move forward in any task. And um, Meyer Silber said, really, he only sees one similarity between what they're doing and what he does. I, I, I would only say that it's just the capability to be devout to something. Uh, I think maybe we should go on to the differences from there. <laughs> and, and I guess the, the, it sounds like uh, the way you've described them, and I, I may be wrong, uh, that these people are imprisoned by certain actions. I don't feel imprisoned. I don't feel compelled. Uh, to say, oh, I can't be in a car from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. I look at uh, as freedom. One interesting um, difference between Meyer and the people who we've heard about so far in the program is that when Meyer goes through his daily rituals, when any religious person, I guess, goes through their daily rituals, it connects him to a tradition, to the Bible, to the Torah, to his family, to his people. Whereas um, the people who we've heard in, in the show up till now, when they go through the day with their very obsessive rituals, it doesn't connect them to anyone else. Their path is just a lot more lonely. obey the commandments out of fear that something bad will happen if you don't? Um, I would say that I do, yes, to be honest. What's the bad thing that would happen? What's the bad thing that would happen? Yeah. Oh, um, I guess maybe it's uh, the fear of not knowing, the fear of not, uh, not belonging, uh, sort of like uh, this abandonment that maybe with my abandonment of God, God would abandon me, uh, and I would be alone, um, and I'd be responsible for myself. Or here I feel like if I can go and do the things that God wants, God is with me. You know, Ira, one thing that, that I find kind of interesting is that even though Meyer is, is describing how different he is from, from Jillian, say, I think there are a lot of similarities between how they see their worlds. Uh, I think that, you know, 
especially when he was talking about about his his fears. You know, I think Jillian's are a lot the same way. It's not that she's she's terrified of of the number two, but she just feels she's not like, afraid of the wrath of two. Exactly. Just like he's not afraid of the wrath of God right, but coming think, down on him if he doesn't obey the commandments. But I think that that you know she feels like it's kind of a dangerous world, and and it helps to have something on her side. And her in her case, it's it's the number two. I mean, I think if if just just like. He said that he'd feel sort of you know lonely or separated if if he uh, disobeyed God. In the same way, I think Jillian would would really miss the number two. Act four, heroic obsessions. You know, Ira, one thing about the way that we judge. Uh, obsessions is how successful the person is. I mean, take Michael Jordan. In in every way, he's a completely obsessed person. He's obsessed with winning um, to what we'd consider to be a really unhealthy degree if he wasn't such a good basketball player. I mean, it's just lucky that he is able to, you know, carry the team on his back whenever he needs to and, and, and actually win. If not, you know, he'd be up on a freeway overpass somewhere. <laughs> right, exactly. If, 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 the, if the story of obsession can be subsumed in a larger story of heroism and glory, then the obsession, nobody even pays attention to it. Right. Well, this leads us to our, our next two uh, stories here on our show. Here, this is the work of two people who've immersed themselves in their own particular obsessions, and people at home can judge for themselves with what, with what results. This first piece of work is one of the stranger things, I have to say, we've ever put on the show. A guy named Greg Whitehead has been collecting the sound of s- people screaming and their thoughts about the meaning of different kinds of screams for years all over the world. He, he sets up these special phone lines that people can call into. He set up a, a, a thing called the Institute of Scream Studies. The scream is often treated as some kind of insurmountable, impenetrable obstacle, pure white noise force that is beyond analysis and and unworthy of any kind of interpretation. But here at the Institute, uh, we hear the scream from entirely the other perspective. The scream as an opening, as an entry point, as an access point, an entry into a vast interior landscape that has as its surface this highly nuanced, uh, very individual uh, psychoacoustic force to it. There's also a scream line. The, the actual journey that the screamer takes into the interior landscape. And when we established the telephone answering machine here at the Institute, we called it the scream line because that machine was going to circulate individual scream lines into Thank you, Mr. Whitehead. I believe you are on the wrong track. I'm sure if you came to my house, you'd hear the screams that you'd never want to hear again. 
now. Thank you. of screams from Greg Whitehead of the Institute for Scream Studies. He invites your screams and your thoughts about screamings. And if uh, we get together enough of these from around the country, he's going to put together a second compendium of screams for some later show that we'll play. It's a little radio experiment. Here is the phone number to call. Call 312-832-3326. Again, 312-832-3326. We're serious about this. (laughs) Call scream and talk about uh, screams. And Paul, while, while people are dialing... Well, the next person that I talk to is an artist in San Diego named Liza Liu. And she is another obsessed person who has a, uh, a heroic narrative of obsession. Um, 
for five years, she she had a ritual that she did every day. She would um, get up in the morning, get dressed, get ready to go about her day, and then sit down at her studio with tweezers and white glue and tens of thousands of tiny little beads, and she would spend the whole day gluing them down into into patterns. Um, and at the end of five years, she'd created this amazing work of art. I haven't had much luck describing this work. What does that mean, a beaded kitchen? You imagine a beaded skirt or a beaded top. This is The best I can do is I can say this is a three-dimensional room. It's 200 square feet. It's painted, but it's painted with beads that you have to apply with the tweezers one at a time. So it's this amazing amount of color. It's um, pinks and blues and silvers and golds. The, imagine a wood grain counter in your kitchen. Only suddenly, instead of brown wood, it's become golden and yellow and, and um, burnt copper. There's a table in the middle of the kitchen with a bright beaded tablecloth. On the table are a plate of pancakes that's beaded and a cereal box that's beaded and toast and bacon and a newspaper, all of them beaded. Behind the table there are beaded cupboards, a beaded fridge, cookbook, stove. Every surface is covered with tens of thousands of beads. And the effect is one of unbelievable color. The whole place seems like it's, it's plugged in, it's just shining. Nothing is spared. There's even a, a beaded dustpan on the floor that's filled with beaded dust. The thing about an obsession is you never know where it's going to lead. One minute you're just a regular person collecting autographs or saving string or trying to keep clean, and then something just overtakes you. For Liza, and I think for a lot of people, you reach a point where it's suddenly not so much fun. It's, you know, it's a job. It's a duty. I didn't think about it. I thought it would take about six months to do when I started. I didn't think it would take so much. I didn't, I didn't realize it would take my life. I didn't realize that, um, that when you... It's like falling in love, maybe. It's a form of, of um, where you, you watch your life, you watch everything else fall or, or fall away. You lose everything, in a sense. five years, I um, was in the constant stage of to-do lists, of stress and pressure, and, and always feeling like a failure, because every day you feel as though you've gotten nothing done. You maybe get five inches of work done, you know, five inches of an entirely beaded kitchen. So you really felt like a failure every day for five years? <laughs> It's just a personal problem. Um, you know, yeah, I always would feel like I didn't get enough done. I never had the feeling of, wow, did I just, you know, really do well today. Maybe I'll work an uh, 18-hour day, and then maybe, you know, I'll continue to do that for two weeks. So what? how much time did that take? I don't clock in. How many days in those five years did you not work on it at all? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know how much it cost me to do it. I don't know. If I knew those answers, I wouldn't do it. Nobody who thinks like that would beat a kitchen.
Um, the wall panels were really um, challenging because the curi curiosity is the thing that motivates me. Not, as I'm not patient, I'm curious. So I already knew, once I had done one wall panel, I knew what it was going to look like. Then I had to do nine more, you know, or eight more panels, and then they all get put together. And um, that was really difficult. <laughs> I would wonder, God, why am I so depressed? And then finally I stood the whole wall up, and I realized, my God, no wonder I've been depressed. I've been doing the same pattern for the last three months. She didn't have any grants or patrons when she was working in the kitchen. So to make ends meet, she'd have to sell pieces of, of her work from time to time. And of course, the pieces that she'd sell would be beaded. They would be pieces from the kitchen. And in fact, she, she says that she's probably sold the equivalent of the kitchen. There, there's a, sort of another entire kitchen out there uh, in, in various people's homes. So she'd have to bead in order to buy beads in order to bead. It's one step backward and then another step forward, hopefully. Hopefully it would buy two months in the studio one sale or two sales or you know and the problem with my work is that it takes so long so selling a um, soup can would wouldn't just set me back a day it would set me back maybe several weeks for a long time I, I felt really res I resented how hard it was this didn't seem right I mean nobody who works at iMagnon has to work at iMagnon in order to then work at iMagnon. Do you know what I mean? She was living in L.A. a couple of years ago and there was an earthquake that almost destroyed the building that her studio was in. I got this phone call in the middle of the night. I, was, I had an apartment where basically they were locking the studio out where you would lose everything. They did this to um, you know, doctor's offices. They lost all their files because once a building is condemned, they lock it out and you can't get back in. So there was this great sort of um, moment where I didn't know if I was going to lose like f three years of work. I didn't know if I was going to... And if I had lost it, if, if, I had, if it had gotten locked out, I, I wondered, would I do it again? Would I make that table again? But thankfully, I had, um, I had time. We had two hours to get everything, and a bunch of friends came, and we just shoved everything. And this work is so fragile. Can you imagine doing this in two hours? But we got everything in the truck, and I ended up moving to Southern California, you know, even further south to San Diego. So did you ever answer that question for yourself about what, you'd, what you would have done if it was um, destroyed? Oh, thank God I didn't have to answer that question. is people think I'm patient and I'm not patient I'm tremendously impatient um, but I'm very very curious like just to the point of death I'm curious I wanted to know what it would look like to beat a table that's what got me through it it's the same pattern it's a pink and silver and blue pattern again and again and again and again but what kept me this sustained the interest was what will it look like when it's finished so if I had lost the piece and I knew what it took to do the piece and I already knew what it looked like why would I do it again what would be the, the uh, motivating factor? Would that be to make it so that you could see it? I'm not sure if that's what motivates me. I'm not sure if the approval of anyone else is what motivates me. If I had known that there would be those kind of sacrifices, I probably wouldn't have done it. But as, as it came up, it was sort of like, as you cross that road, you decide if you're going to jump over it or if you're going to retreat. And every time I found that I would jump over it. 
life is so um, there's so much chaos. I think that one of the great solutions to dealing with that that chaos is to have a mission, to have some kind of purpose. That's sort of the way I, I deal with with um, with why I'm here, is to make every square inch something something meaningful. Um, my materials happen to to speak of that because they are they are so slow and painstaking, and I have all this time to think about purpose and why am I doing this, and is this a meaningful thing to be doing? Everything has meaning. That's the philosophy of my work. Absolutely everything has meaning, if you give it meaning. I had this in, up in my studio, and um, also I live in my, you know, it's a, it's a loft, so I was having um, something repaired, and the repairman came inside, was fixing my washer-dryer, and he, he looked at my kitchen, and it was almost finished, so it was really what you're looking at, just about maybe minus a tile or two. He said, put his hands on his hips, he said, neat hobby. <laughs> Laszlo's kitchen is currently on display in a museum in Minneapolis, and she's working on a beaded backyard, including a million beaded blades of grass. You better come on in my kitchen. There's hard to be rain in our door. Well, Potop, thank you for, uh, for co-hosting and sitting here for this hour with me. Well, thank you, Ira. Our program was produced today by Elise Spiegel, Paul Tuff, and myself, with Peter Clowney, Nancy Updike, and Dolores Wilbur, contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, and Margie Rocklin. Original vibraphone music today, written and performed by Carrie Biolo. Special thanks today to WBUR in Boston for recording Lauren Slater, to Rabbi Posner, to Steve Cushing and John Connors. If you would like a copy of this program, it's only $10. Call us to get that at WBEZ in Chicago. The phone number is 312 832 3380. If you want to leave screams, stories about screams, or thoughts about screams for the Institute for Scream Studies, call 312-832-3326, and we will pass those along. Our email address, radio at well.com. Funding for This American Life has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. You better come on in my kitchen. There's going to be rain and I do.